it's good to be with you this morning. I got a I got a surprise this morning that was really awesome. I told him I wouldn't embarrass him, but I've got to mention him, okay? I had some friends from Georgia, uh, Jenny and Jimmy Carter, not the president, okay, but he's still that cool, okay? Um, they have come to visit us. They were up in Nashville coming up for a conference, and they came to visit. And so I just want to say welcome to the journey. Glad you're here this morning. It's also good to see everybody else. Um, we are going to do something. If uh, Those of you kind of just coming in and some of you who've been here for a while, you understand, you know this. We've been walking through the book of Jude in the New Testament. And what we've been doing is we've been continually reading it because when the New, Ter- when the New Testament church, the, the church of the time of the New Testament, when they got together, a lot of times they would just read the letters that were sent by the apostles, the letters we now have as Scripture. And sometimes we lo- lost that. And sometimes we don't spend any time. In fact, the Bible tells us to make sure in our corporate worship that we give, um, that we give time for the reading of God's Word. And so here's where we're going to do something a little bit dangerous, okay, for a sermon. I'm actually going to read because we're at the, very, the last two verses in this book. And so what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to read through the entire letter. We're going to accomplish that. But whether or not we listen and whether or not we can, and I can keep your attention through this, it depends on, it depends on a, a, a couple of things, okay? How I read it and if we're ready to hear it, okay? And so here's the, here's the process by which we're going to do it. We're going to read this together so we can get to the fact that after talking about these false teachers that Jude has mentioned, he ends in this explosion of praise. I think it's important. So would you do me this favor and try to help me? Let's, let's all stay in attention to God's word as we read it together to get down to verse 24. Sound good? We're going to begin in Jude, verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He establishes who he is. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to people who have been called out by God's gracious purposes and who are kept by God. And then he begins to tell us the problem that he's addressing in the letter in verses 3 and 4. It says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend or to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then he talks about these false teachers, and from verse 4 down to verse 16, he talks about how bad the false teachers who have weaseled their way in the church, how bad they are, and how they are coming to destruction. In verse 4 it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness into the judgment of the great day. Just as in Sodom and Gomorrah, And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, they serve as as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The false teachers, just like in the Old Testament, false teachers now will be punished. It's certain, and they will. Their their certainty of their punishment is eternal. In verse eight, it says, "Yet in like manner." These people also, they don't rely on God's word. They're relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not, do not understand, and they destroyed by, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
verse 11, woe to them. It's going to be a bad day for these people because they're underneath God's wrath. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves to the, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs in your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the, glo- the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Obviously, these guys are worthless, and they're taking God's people down a worthless path. He says, woe to them. In verse 14, it says this, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. And then he goes on again, he characterizes the false teachers yet again. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to get gain. And then we get to this last part. And not only does he characterize these bad teachers, but then he calls the Christians to a life of perseverance, to a life that goes against the grain of where these false teachers are going. He calls them to stay in the love of God. And so we see in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, reminding those, those Christians who are under attack here that they're loved by God. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of, our, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Then he says, but you, beloved by God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, and this is the command, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And as we've seen in this passage, and as we've been walking through this, this is a letter about judgment. This is a letter about false teachers. This is a letter about being deceived. And sometimes that can weigh heavy on us. But he says, I want you to keep yourselves in the love of God. And then in this season of difficulty in this church, do you know where he goes to at the end of it? He does not go to woe is me. How many times do we jump to woe is me in our life, right? I tell you what, there's just stuff going on. Look at the world. It's falling apart. Turn on the news. It's, it's, it's bad news. Look at the church. There's problems inside and out. What do we do? What, what, our default setting is to go, woe is me. Where is God? But here's where the New Testament writers ended up, especially Jude. You would not think that he ends with an explosion of praise. But that's exactly where he ends. Look in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Drop the mic, okay? He gets to this place where in this season of difficulty, it's, it results in praise to God. I don't know where you are in your life, okay? 
by and large, there's some of us who are doing fantastic, okay? There are some of us who are pretending to be fantastic when really your whole world is falling apart, right? You walk in, give you an example. Either my wife and I locked our keys in the car yesterday when we were helping Tom move, Tom and Bethany move. It's still debated, okay? Probably her, okay? So we get to, we get to, we, this, we had just gotten there to help with the moving, and we're at the door, and we knock on the door, and Tom comes to the door, and, uh, and we're all like, no, you did it, no, you did it, you did it. And we'd see Tom, hey, Tom, how you doing? How much do we lie? And try to think everything's okay when it's not, when we're falling apart. But I want you to know something. There's a song we used to sing when I was in youth group. And it was, it was based off of Psalm 150, which is kind of like this. It's a doxology. It's a time of praise. Kind of like this passage we're looking to. And, and it talks about let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And there was this great line in it. And it's kind of stuck with me over the years. And this is an older song. But it said, praise him in every season of my soul. What does that mean? That means in every different every different aspect of your life when life is joyful, praise him. When life is difficult, praise him. When you're on the mountaintop, praise him. When you're in the valley, praise him. When your health is great, praise him. When your health is bad, you praise him. When your health is just eh, praise him. When you, when you see the purpose and the joy of your life, praise him. When there's darkness and it's a dark night of your soul, you praise him. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't just say praise him, okay? It's not just a command. He give, they give us reasons why he's to be praised, okay? And so this morning, as we look at these final two verses, this is one of the best doxologies. This is widely regarded as one of the most beautiful doxologies or, or uh, expressions of praise praise is what we really get to in the entire Bible. It's in one of the shortest books and one of the most oft-overlooked books, but if you look at it, it's, it's what they call, it's a, it's a doxology. It's a formula, okay? Just because something is a prescribed formula doesn't mean it can't be without passion. And so we get to this. Doxology means this. It's a brief formula of expressing praise or glory to God. It's within this kind of frame. And here's the two parts of it. There's a description of praise. And in this situation, God is praised because he is the one who can keep the believers. Secondly, it's an expression of his infinite nature. And he is called here the only God, our own Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. So there's both of these things are met. So he's using this formula this widely known formula of praising, but he's using it at the bookend of this tough letter he had to write because he knows something, that the people of God must be a praising people because God is worth praise at all times in every season of our soul. And here's a couple of reasons why. And the first one is this. The reason that you can praise no matter what season of your life you're in, the reason you can give God glory and honor and worship him is this. God is praised for his power to keep his beloved children from stumbling. Where did you get that? Look in the text, verse 24. Now to him who is able, which means powerful enough, which means has all of the power to do so. I've talked about this. There's a difference between want to and ability, right? Like I want to keep my family safe at all times, but I am not able to do so. I'll do the best I can. But there are circumstances and things that will not allow me to do that. Circumstances beyond our control, natural disasters, many other different things, illness, all these things. We would say, if we're alive and we can do it, see, we get this problem. God is able at all times and we are not. I have a desire to dunk a basketball. I am not able to do so. Does that make sense? 
Of course it does. I'm five foot nine. All right, ain't happening, bro. That I I don't have the ability, but God does have the ability, and so now this praise results in this that that now to Him talking about God through Jesus Christ, He is able means He has the power in which to do this, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now, what does stumbling mean? Stumbling, does that mean that he will keep you and where you will never sin or falter and that you will never struggle in your life? There are some that would teach that. That is a a theological term called hogwash, okay? That's not biblical, and if you look at all Jesus' disciples, they must not have had enough faith because they were always in trouble. And they were, and they take Peter, for example, constantly screwing up, okay? Constantly having difficulties. So here's the, here's the thing. The stumbling here must be understood to understand what that means because he can keep you from stumbling, which sounds great, but if we don't understand what stumbling is, then we can't, we, we don't know, we, we can say, yeah, he can keep us from stumbling, but I don't know what that means. So it, in, in context of this passage, stumbling has to do with ultimate salvation. Here's how I can tell you that it means that. Look in context. He who's, he, to, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The stumbling here has an eye towards the last day when we will stand before Christ. And he will look upon us. And he will judge us for our works. But the good thing is, those of us who are in Christ, we are not judged by our own works. We are judged by his works on our behalf that we trust in. So stumbling here doesn't mean we won't falter and fail and have difficulties in this life. Obviously, that's not the case. Look at the situation in which he is writing. But stumbling here is this, that, that the grace of God is so great to such an extent that he will persevere you and keep you till the very end. From the second you become a believer until the second your eyes are opened in heaven and all of the, the flesh is removed and you see him and your faith has become sight, he will keep you from ultimately stumbling. And he will, and this is great, he will present you holy. Let's, actually, let's read it again. Let's read it in exa- exactly the words, to present you blameless, which means without spot or defilement. This word is used in the, in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about sacrifices. Sacrifices were to be perfect. When you had to bring a, a, a physical sacrifice, like a sheep or a lamb or a goat or any uh, bird, uh, when you would bring this thing to to the to be sacrificed on behalf of your, you know, for the covering of your sins in the Old Testament sacrificial system, you couldn't bring the worst of the worst. You had to bring the best of the best, the most unblemished of these animals. This is the word, and using the same same phrase here, that he presents you blameless. That's not because you are blameless. It's because you trust in his blamelessness. Because he was the perfect sacrifice without blemish, never sinned, Jesus. And he will present you that way. And then it goes on and it says he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory, the shining forth of who he is. And then he says this, with great joy. He God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, 
will keep his people from stumbling ultimately, and he will persevere them through the great difficulties and trials that come in their life, whether it be false teachers or, or cancer or any, any other things that could happen, family falling apart, loss of everything. He will keep them, and he makes this promise that he will keep them, and, and he, will, he will keep them until he, they see him in glory and their faith is sight, and he will present them in front of God the Father through Jesus Christ as completely and utterly blameless, and there will be great joy. Now, I want you to know this. I want you to notice something, though, okay? Notice this. This is very important to understand. In verse 24, it talks, and in verse, uh, in verse 1 of this passage, it talks about the fact that you're kept by God. In this situation, in verse 4, it says that he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you ultimately. But if you go back up to verse 21, we're kept by God in the other in verse 1 and in verse 24, but in verse 21 it says, "Keep yourselves in the love of God." We need we've talked about this tension before, but we really need to think about this, okay? On one end, God keeps us from stumbling. He keeps us in the face. He keeps persevering our faith through the dark nights, through the good times. He keeps working. On the other end of the spectrum, he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. So there's one sense in which God's doing the keeping and one sense in which we're commanded to do the keeping. Now, there's two ways to approach this, okay? Well, three. First, the, the, the first way is the most ridiculous way, which is like, I don't know. Why would you do that? If this is God's word, you like actually need to know that, okay? A lot of us are like, all right, whatever, we'll figure it out, okay? But actually, I think there's, there's a reason to say, so we're not gonna approach it that way, right? I don't know. That would be the short sermon. I don't know what's going on. You guys get out of here peace, okay? The other way to approach it is this, that to believe the Bible contradicts itself, which is insane. And I'll tell you why it's insane. The same person who wrote this letter is saying the same thing in two different spots. Would you, if, if you were talking with somebody and they said one thing and another thing that seemed to contradict each other, what would you do? You'd ask them a question. You would think that, that person would not do a self-contradiction, or if you thought that that would be the case, you'd think that person was crazy, Right? It's like, this is a mic stand, and this is also a tree. If I said that in both contexts, you'd be like, that guy's weird. That can't be the case. Let's give the Bible a little bit of a benefit of a doubt here, because it has been around for thousands of years, and it has been changing people's lives, and it has been, it has been radically transforming the world for Jesus, okay? So let's give the Bible, you know, let's give it a benefit of the doubt there and say these are not contradictory statements, but they're complementary statements. And they give us a full-orbed look at what it looks like in our life that we are completely kept by God, but we must keep ourselves in the love of God. Let me read to you what a guy named Tom Schreiner said in response to this verse. He says this, the promise that God will persevere believers from apostasy, which means leaving the faith, okay? The promise that God will persevere believers from apostasy does not cancel out the exhortation of verse 21 of, the, of keeping yourselves in the love of God. It says this, ultimately, however, listen to this, ultimately, however, believers obey this admonition because God will strengthen them to do so. The believers will keep themselves in the love of God because God gives them the grace to do that and the strength to. And then he says this, he gives us the grace that we desire to keep ourselves, or that we, yeah, he gives us the grace that we desire to keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, 
it still it seems kind of academic and murky here, but I want to give you an illustration from the Bible. Is that okay? First Kings chapter 17. We, they had the opposite problem in this chapter of the Bible than we have. It's rained every day here, right? Right? But there's a problem, and what happens is Elijah the prophet prophesies to King Ahab, who's a bad king, and he says, there's a drought coming, and it's, gonna, it's not going to rain for a couple of years. You just need to know that. And so God sends Elijah out to a brook, and he starts drinking, the, drinking from the brook and lives out there for some time. And then what happens? After the rain dissipates, no more water in the brook, okay? So he tells him to go to see this widow. Now, here's the good news. When droughts happen here, when famines happen here, we have enough reserve food. We bring our food in from other places. We don't really have to worry about famines or droughts that much in this country. Praise God. However, that was not the case there. If it don't rain, you don't eat. And so there was this widow lady who God told Elijah to go visit. I brought visual aids this morning. I know you're, you're, this is, this is Rubbermaid. Okay. So here's what happened. He tells Elijah, and I want you to go to this lady, and she's going to take care of you. Well, he walks into this town, and he sees the lady. And he says, would you bring me something to drink and a cake to eat? And she looked at him, and she got the water, and she came back. She said, I'm bringing you the water. But the cake, I'm collecting sticks to make a fire, and I only have enough, enough flour and oil to make me and my son a cake. I'm going to make this cake. We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die because we have no way to get more food. That's a bad day, right? That's a real, this is my last meal, and it's not even going to be a good one, all right? If you had a last meal, what would you pick, okay? Would it be lobster? Would it be steak? It would not be McDonald's, I can almost guarantee you, okay, right? So this is like, all right, last meal, and we're going to die. The situation looks hopeless. I got one to make me, sir. You are out of luck. And what does Elijah say? He says, the Lord, Lord, the Lord came to me and told me, if you do this for me, your flour and your oil are not going to run dry. And so here's what I did. I brought this from my house. Okay, this is self-rising flour. They probably didn't have self-rising flour then. Okay, that's a little bit. Okay, and I, this is the best container that I could find at my house. All right, but you, you can tell that's flour, right? Can you see that out there? So, and that's actually a handful. My wife, I didn't tell her what I was doing. I said, do you got any, any Tupperware? And uh, flour, she's like, yeah. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I had this idea. So I'm grabbing a handful of flour and smacking it in there. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, you'll find out tomorrow. All right, so I got this out. And this is literally a handful of flour. She saw me do it, okay? I got a witness over here. And this is about a tablespoon full of oil, maybe a little bit more, maybe two. So I want you to think about this. This lady is out there, and her resources are almost non-existent, right? I mean, you can't make a cake with this. I mean, she was just going to make something small. They were going to eat their last bit of food, and they were resigned to death. It was a reality of the time period where they were in. Elijah said, I want you to go. I want you to, God has made a promise to you, and I want you to make me this cake. And in so doing, in your act of faith, God is going to display his grace, and he's going to give you a promise that this little bit that you have is never going to run out. Do you know what she does? And you, can you imagine the anguish and the hunger that she was feeling? I don't know what it is, but when you get home, when you were a kid, when you got home from school, right, like you wanted to eat everything. I still do this. When I go to my mom's house, I, whenever I walk in, I'm like, what you got to eat? 
33, I got food in my house, okay? I got a fridge. I, I buy it. I have money. I, I pay for it. And I like, I can buy it, but I go to my mom's house, what you got to eat? It's like I'm like a kid coming home from fifth grade, and like, I've never eaten. I didn't eat my lunch today. I didn't like the PB&J, Okay. So I'll come in, I'm going and eat. Now you can imagine the power of hunger, and this lady is hungry, and she's only got this much to eat, okay? She can't go to the Golden Corral, okay? She can't go anywhere. This is all she's got. And this guy says, give it to me because God said to. You imagine the personal anguish that she must have felt and how much she felt like not doing that? And you imagine once the cake hit the fryer or whatever she cooked it in and that smell came and she wanted to eat that because of her great hunger? Don't you think that would be the case? And what does she do? She gives it to the prophet of God. And do you know what happens through that whole entire period? The little bit of oil that she had never ran out. And the little bit of flour that she had, it never ran out. It's not because she rationed. It was a miracle of God. It was his promises and truth. And I want to make, I want to help you understand this analogy that I'm trying to draw. This is just a picture, okay? We come with nothing. Even the very implements that we have of our, of to be sustained are not even our own. We've come to faith by God's goodness. Because remember, when we come to Christ and salvation, there's nothing we bring. We can't bring good works. Only thing we actually bring is our sin and our shame. We bring negative to the party. It's like getting married to somebody that's got like a million dollars worth of debt, and immediately upon marriage, you own it, right? And that's what Jesus, he, you, come, you come to him with like negative balance in your account, come with nothing, and he gives you the faith, and it may be a small amount, but it's in the great one, and you believe, and you are, you are saved, you are born again, right? So you come with nothing, and you have very little still. And there's some days when it feels like your reserves of faith, the things that keep you going, are, are full, like they're overflowing with oil, and they're overflowing with flour, However, there's many days when you struggle with sin or there's a hardship in your life and you show up and you have almost nothing left. However, let me give you this picture. This is where the grace of God comes in. The grace of God is seen in this. He supplied your needs in the first place, the needs of salvation. How we keep ourselves in the love of God is we keep going back to the jars putting our hands in for the gifts of his grace and he keeps supplying them and even we're at the place where like we can't like our faith is faltering and saying God I don't think you're going to provide I don't think you're going to do it he gives us the inclination and the draw and the pull of his spirit just to go back to what seems to be empty and out of sorts and he pulls life out of death again I want you to see that that's how he keeps you from stumbling. He continually continues to work. Your resources are nothing. You may be dry as a stone, dry as the desert. But if you come to him through his word, through his prayer, and it's a drawing back that his people will have when we can't even take another step, he provides, just like he did for this widow, grace upon grace upon grace. I hope you see that. That's what he does. He gives us the grace to believe. He tells, gives us the command to keep believing, to keep ourselves in the love of God. But even that, he works within us 
And he gives us grace so that we will keep going back to the fountain. We will keep going back to the the word of God. We'll keep going back to the cross of Christ. We will keep going back to his grace. We will keep persevering, always repenting and turning back and going to him. And it's not our doing. We get to, it's like the widow walking over, but it's all of grace because the very thing we had in the beginning, which is faith, he gave us and he sustains it. And when we walk back, which is an act where we keep turning and going back to him, he keeps providing, even though our tanks and our sustenance is just nothing. It's like this hymn, that, this is a modern hymn that this lady named Sandra McCracken wrote. This is, this is good. You just need to just get this. You know, you need to put this somewhere in your house. And it says, this grace gives me fear, and this grace draws me near. And listen to this. And all that it asks, it provides. Do you get that? The tension is this. We continue to repent and go back to the things, go back to the grace of God, keep running back to the cross of Christ when our hearts feel like stumbling, when sin seems better than Jesus. What he does is he works and he brings inward conviction in our hearts, and we run back with nothing in our hands, and he keeps, he keeps providing that grace. And so it's this great thing where we keep ourselves in the love of God, but we're ultimately kept. And it's this idea, again, that this grace, it gives us fear. This grace draws us near, and all that it asks, it provides. The soul who rests on Jesus will not be forsaken. The heart that rests all of its hope on Jesus will not go hopeless. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter how dark the night. It doesn't matter how much you have fallen and sinned. If you repent, he, and it's a work of him that you even would repent and turn from your sins, he will keep drawing you. He has got you. He has got you safe. When your heart is cold, he will warm it and revive it, and you'll run back to him, and you'll experience grace upon grace. He will not leave you. These people are experiencing great difficulty in the church. There are people teaching false doctrine that can lead them away from Christ. And he ends this place saying, contend for the faith, watch for them, keep yourself in the love of God, but glorify God because no matter what comes into your life, he will keep you from stumbling and he will bring you, believer, face to face with Jesus and you will be holy and you will know his joy. How much do we need that? How much is that amazing? How many times have we been let down by people we love? How many times have we seen our hopes and, fit and, and, our hopes and dreams just crushed? How many times have we seen these things just kind of ruin us? It seems like we've had time and time again something happens. And may, how many times do we struggle with sin? And how many times do we struggle with the same sin over and over again? But here's the good news. If you're repenting and believing, it's a sign that God's grace is continually keeping you. He's holding you in your in in his hands and though you may not have much he continues to give you grace and grace and keep you from stumbling everything that you need to continue in the faith has already been given to you and all that he asks of you he supplies by his grace to you do you realize church family that we can go through anything in this life whether it be death sickness or illness or anything, we can go safe and secure because we rely on Jesus and he continues to keep us. That's reason to praise, right? That's reason to praise even in the worst times of your life because I know he's going to keep me.
Now, you may have to put that faith in motion and take that step, okay? But it's all of his grace, and he's got you. You might be walking into an uncertain future, but there's a certain God. He is there. He's got you. He's got you. You're fine. You're gonna know, you know how it ends. You are going to result. You're going to be, because of your trust in him, you're going to be presented before him holy and just and blameless. Just keep going. Keep putting one foot in front of the other because his grace is sustaining. Does that, I'm hoping that, that clears the issue that can be difficult because you are completely sustained by grace, but you've got to keep running towards him and, and running back to that grace. But even that inclination to run back to his grace is his grace given to you. That's a reason to praise. No matter the darkest night you got, there's a reason to praise. Second thing he notices is this. In the verse 25, you're like, whoa, two verses, right? Verse 25, it says this. This is talking about God's nature. The first reason to praise is because God will keep you from stumbling. He's got you. The second reason to praise God, even in difficult situations, no matter what season your soul is in, the second reason is this. God is incomparably glorious in his nature. We say that again. God is incomparably glorious in his nature. Verse 25 talks about the person, who God is. In verse 25 it says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. First and foremost, Jesus and, 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 and God in general, the Godhead, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the one true God. And in saying that and in showing that the way, that is something you need to know about who, who he is. There is no other person to turn to. There is no other, there is no other um, uh, place or God you can turn to, whether it be a physical God you turn to, whether it's drink, drugs, being completely and utterly dependent on somebody else. What, whatever it is, there are no other gods, not your family, not your work, not anything other than him. And there's not any way to save you, not getting a better education, not bettering your life experience, not trying to be a better person. There is no other way to be saved except through the one God, through Jesus Christ. And so that is what's infinitely worthy. We get together not because we found, not because, uh, you know, we found the right truth. It's because the truth found us, and we believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so just know that he is incomparably glorious because he's the only way to have our sins forgiven and to be saved from the certainty of eternal fire that's been talked about in this letter. Secondly, it goes on to say this, it's to him be glory. How many times we get in church, and even you might have heard this before, okay? I used to hear this a lot uh, way back in the day when I was like, you hear glory, right? You ever, said, you ever heard somebody say that before? If somebody, some people say good, you, you get that glory, okay? How many times do we say stuff and we don't know what it means, especially in church? A lot of times we sing stuff too. Yeah, whatever, okay. We're going to sing that. We don't know what it means. If you go up to somebody that doesn't have any clue about Christianity, and you tell them that you've been, you've been washed in the blood of the blood of the lamb and born again, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Okay? You don't think about that because we live in this culture that has been, uh, you, know, uh, you know, has Christianity around it. But if you went to somebody in a country that never heard of the Bible and you went up to them and they're like, I've been washed in the blood of the lamb, they're like, you need a towel? That sounds like a bad experience, okay? And what we're talking about is you've been cleansed from sin, but what glory here is the shining forth of the infinite beauty and awesomeness of who God is so that he might be enjoyed. And so why is he saying this? He said, God, I want your glory and your goodness to us and salvation that you keep us even in the face of all these things that those who rely on Jesus will be kept to the end. I want this to be known throughout the world that you're the only Savior and you're the keeper. Be glory, God. Be known. Majesty. 
because this is the second word we see here. God should be God is is glorious and should be seen as glorious. Second thing is, he is majesty. He has majesty, and this denotes, and this shows, there's a greatness of how worthy he is, and he is due of honor, and it's calling other people to see his worthiness and to be in awe of it. We rarely use the word majesty unless we are talking about some beautiful scene we've seen in nature. First time I got to, I drove up when we were kids, um, my dad drove us up Pikes Peak, which is the highest mountain in the Rocky Mountains, or highest spot in the Rocky Mountains. I was scared to death. To this day, I still hate heights, okay? I get nervous on like two stories. I'm like, I don't like this, okay? We drove up this thing, and you would think, oh, there's guardrails the whole way. No, there's guardrails on the bottom part, but once you get above the tree line, you're looking down at the abyss of death, okay? My brother's over there, I'm having a great time. And I'm eight years old, 10 years old, like, I hate this. I got my jacket over my head. I'm like, oh, please let this end, okay? We get to the top of this place, and I still feel awful, but I could not help but be hit by the majesty of, of you know, Purple Mountain's majesty, right? Just the awe. And you're like, when you see something beautiful, what do you do? Hey, turn around. Don't look at this. No, no. This is from, no, what do you do? Hey, you come here. Check this out. You, look at this. It's beautiful. And God is glorious and he is majestic. And he is calling, Judah's calling people to behold it and to acknowledge that they should worship God. If you realize something, I just wanted, I was talking to a young lady the other day, and I told her something. You're, you're created on purpose for a purpose. And your number one purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And come on, come look. So if you ever wonder what's your purpose in life, your purpose is to make much of God and to enjoy His majesty forever. It's what you're here for. And so He's called them to majesty. And then it says that, G, that it goes on and says, in this talking about who God is and being glorious and being majestic, it says that we should worship him because he has dominion and authority. It relates to his power, that he has in control of everything that happens. So even these false teachers, they're, what does it say in other passages? They're already condemned. Didn't take God's not like, oh no, there's bad teaching in the church. What's going to happen? I never saw this coming. What am I going to do? God never bites his fingernails in, in anxiety. Oh, what's happening in the world. How did we get here in America with these awful people running for office? How did we get here? He's not up there going, I'm afraid. No, it says he has dominion and power, and not only for that, it's through Jesus Christ, because at his name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and then it says this, it's before all time, he has been in he has been holy glorious majestic powerful and in dominion before all time before anything was start thinking about that god existed before anything existed and he is eternal just think about that and then you will have a headache within a couple of minutes okay because it is such a huge thought and he has had all this dominion and power before all time and then he says now in your current circumstances, he has dominion, power, and authority, and he's majestic and glorious in it. He's the only Savior, and he will keep you. All of that is from before there was, now, 
And then it says this, and forever, or until the end of time is really a more literal translation. And that is why we can praise him, because we are never out of his loving care and out of his power and control. And so we can praise in whatever season we're in. If we're in a season of darkness, he is in the season walking with us, and he's ordained it. And if, he is, if you're in him, he is working it for your good. It may not be a good situation, but he is working in it, and it's father-filtered, and he's walking with you to the fire, and he will bring you out of it as much more holy and like him than before because he is working in you, and he will not let you go. It can be in your joy. The great, the great things about your joy, the good things that are happening in your life now, in that he is sovereign and domain over it, and he has given you that time of respite and that goodness, and he deserves praise. He deserves praise in the times where we can't find, where we feel blah, okay? That's the only word I can use to describe it, that one word. I'm not, I'm not sad. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like the world. My world's not falling apart, but I'm not at the heights of joy. I'm just, uh, and most of the time we live in, uh, okay? He is there. And he, and he is working, and he is, he is wooing us, and he's trying to show us his glory and all of those things. And then finally, at the end of this explosion of praise, he says this word that we say all the time, amen. Amen. A lot of times we don't think about this word. What does it mean? Amen. Well, you know, Jesus... Actually, this word he used several times. You remember when he would talk and go look in the in the in the uh, the gospels, and he would say, "Truly, truly, I say to you," or if you have one of the older versions, "Verily, verily, I say to you." Okay, whatever he would say, it would be "Truly, truly," or "Verily, verily." Well, actually, the word is "Amen, amen." That'd be a weird way to start. Can you imagine that? You started that. Sometimes preachers get a tick and they say, "Amen, amen, amen, amen." You know, at the end of everything, they say, "Amen." Okay, maybe I don't know. All right, so. Jesus, did Jesus have a tick? No, he's saying, he's saying, he wanted to say, amen, amen, which means true, true. He's trying to get you to find this. What he is saying is true. So when we say the word amen, one of the most literal translations of the word amen is truth. And this can mean two different things. When you say amen, you're saying whatever was just said, that's truth, and you're acknowledging it. Sometimes we say amen, and we're saying it this way, and there's biblical examples of this. We are trying to say this, it's true, and I can't wait for it to come to reality. You get that? There are things that are true that are not yet reality. For example, the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, but not everybody, that's not, that's not seen in the reality of every person's life, but one day it will be. Whether he's sovereign and king in judgment, and they'll bow in judgment, or they'll bow as Lord. He will be acknowledged. It's true, it's going to happen. He's risen, he's reigning, but it's not yet realized. And so sometimes when we say amen, we're saying that is so true. Amen, that's true. True, true. That's like when we say amen, we're saying, true, bro. That's right. You've been there. Somebody's really getting into it. You're like, that is right. Yes. Amen. And some things you're like, oh, Lord, please come and save us. We're in a mess. And you're like, Amen. Let that be true. Come, Lord Jesus. It's like the idea when we're talking about when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is the same idea. Amen is saying, whatever these truths are, let them be so. And I want you to get this. My son, my son Judson, it's so cool to have a, a little guy who asks you questions and stuff in, in ways you never thought about. And he comes to me, and he's like, have we going to church this Sunday? I was like, 
yeah, <laughs> well, what we do. <laughs> and I had to ask him what I did, and he's like, yeah, I think you get up and talk about Jesus. I said, all right, we'll go with that. That'll work. And so we're talking, and I said, and I said, we go to church every Sunday. And he goes, oh, well, why? And I said, well, great teaching opportunity. Well, number one reason is Jesus rose on a Sunday. And every Sunday we get up and we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And Christians have done this through years. And so when we get up, even though it's not Easter Sunday, every time we get together and worship, we are saying amen to the resurrection. We are saying truth, baby. He got up. He's not dead. He's reigning. And he's coming. So we're getting, I didn't say all that to him. I just said, yeah, that's why. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, you're getting weird. So I said that to him. I said, that's why we go every Sunday. That's why we show up. Every Sunday is a big Amen. And we get this joy of coming together and saying, he is risen. And not only that, we sing songs that are biblically accurate. We work really hard to sing songs that are biblically, biblically accurate. We pray prayers in biblical ways, asking God to be glorified in us. We also preach the word of God in, in, in context and, and do our very best to present the truth of God so that the people of God at the end could say, amen. Amen in the sense of that's true because it's the word of God. And amen in the sense of the saying, I need to be more in line with Christ. I need to repent. I need to trust him. I need to change my life here. We're saying amen to all that. God, it's true. Let it be true in my life. We're saying this big amen every week. And do you know how awesome it is to get to say amen and to agree with people? Because who do we agree with in the world? The Bible is very clear that every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day worship Jesus. There will be some from every nation, tribe, tongue, people group in the world. They will be all, and how, what could connect people from all over the world? You want you to know something. In this part of the world, football seems to be king. In the other part of the world, football is king. Soccer. We could, I watched the Olympics. There are, there were, it's like 150,000 people in Brazil are going crazy because they, after 120 minutes, they decided it by kicking a ball from penalty kicks like 10 feet away, and they decided the game after 120 minutes of tie. That was going to be the winner. Americans are like, <laughs> okay. The rest of the world's like, yeah, soccer! How can, how can we be that far apart? And agree on anything. Just for one example of so many differences in the world. I want you to know this. Across the world, there are believers everywhere with one creed. And if we were to say Jesus is Lord, even if we're on different denominations, if we have different languages, but we could somehow say it in a language that everybody could understand, they would be like, amen. So we get amens from all across the world. And there are people all across the world on Sundays getting together saying amen to the truth of Jesus. And so you want you to know something. This is a huge amen. It is true he is risen. It is true he is reigning. It is true he is coming. It is true that he will keep us from stumbling from this time forth and forevermore. It is true he is glorious. It's true he's the only Savior. It is true he's majestic. It is true he has all the power and all the dominion from before time, now, and forever. And his people, every week, we get up in the face of pain and persecution and sin in our own lives and sin in the world, and we get up and we proclaim truth and we say a big, honking amen yes and you said it too and he is worthy of our amen and he is worthy of our praise even in the darkest of seasons there is a benediction and here it is 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that your truths are yes and amen in Christ. We're thankful that you keep us, that you sustain us. We're thankful that we can celebrate together the truth of God that binds so many different people into one body, the body of Christ. So whatever season we are in, God, we want to praise you that you keep us and that you are good and glorious and infinitely wonderful. Let us respond in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.